If we can see them in the dizzy Austin traffic, the signs, especially when we stop at stoplights, are ubiquitous. We'll work for food, homeless vet, children at home, anything you can do to help, God bless. Of course, these aren't just signs. There are people attached to those signs. And for many of us sitting at a stoplight, this sets off an internal debate. Should we look these people in the eye, or am I going to give them a false sense of hope if I do that? Uh, if I ignore them, is that dehumanizing? What does a smile say? Should I have been prepared? Should I have had a box of granola bars there on the front seat to share? Uh, or maybe I should share a pamphlet about mobile loaves and fishes. Is it easier just to look straight ahead until the light turns green? Why isn't it turning green? Why isn't it turning green? Why are the stoplights here so long? Do I give them cash? Do I even carry cash anymore? Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We've been talking about the geography of the Beatitudes, the landscape, the spiritual landscape Blessed can be understood as you're in the right place if. You're, in the, you're on the right road when you are merciful. Indeed, we're in the right place when we see those who are in need of mercy. This part of our faith geography, of course, does not exist on its own. It's woven into the very fabric of Scripture. As it is today with the parable, Jesus taught of four people who sequentially each went down the same road. The first person was attacked. He didn't see it coming. His pain and anxiety, we can presume, was off the charts after getting beaten, stripped, robbed, and left for dead. Traveling next down the road was a priest, and then a little while longer, a Levite, and still, finally, the last, arriving at the same spot of the attack, was a Samaritan. What did each of them see? The priest, his lack of attention, I think, is the most surprising. It's kind of in his job description to care about people like someone in the ditch. On the other hand, I'm sure he had a lot going on. You know, maybe he was thinking about planning a beautiful worship service. Maybe he was, had this, just on the brink of this spiritually uplifting insight, oh, a nugget of wisdom. He was ready to just shower upon the faithful, and so he was lost in contemplation. Perhaps the sight of the beaten man horrified him. We are not used to seeing, most of us, people who are beat to within an inch of their lives. Perhaps the priest was consumed with his own life at the moment and just simply didn't have the attention to look at the man in front of him. Whatever, the man, though, the priest walking down the road, veered sharply left when he got to the spot. And he shifted even further away out of the line of sight of the one in need. No sight, no tug of responsibility. 
Something like that, I think, went on in the mind of the Levite as well. Something made the Levite more move from one side of the road to the other side of the road in order not to see the hurting man. The story tells us of two individuals making wide detours in order to avoid someone in need, in order to avoid looking in the eye of someone in the midst of pain. 20th century German theologian Helmut Thielicke has said, love always seizes the eyes first, and then the hand. If I close my eyes, my hands too remain unemployed. And finally, my conscience too falls asleep, for this disquieting neighbor has disappeared from my sight. This is the Matthew 25 text that we heard Ed read this morning. When all are gathered for final judgment, Jesus reveals it was he who we met in the hungry and in the stranger and in the sick and in the naked and in the imprisoned. The righteous ones asked Jesus, Lord, where, where, where did we see you hungry or sick or a stranger? Just so the unrighteous, their response or their excuse is, Lord, we, we didn't see you. I mean, if we'd seen you, we would have done something, but we didn't see you. Mercy requires sight. Mercy requires sight. Lori Anderson, in her young adult novel, Winter Girls, tells the story of Leah, a teenager struggling with anorexia, with her parents dealing with a divorce and her best friend just moved away, Leah struggles. They go unnoticed by those who are with her, who walk by her every single day. Even though her body mass gradually begins to waste away, and she comes up with really good reasons why she has to miss out on dinner or why she can skip lunch, her family, her teachers, her friends avoid seeing her pain because, you know, with pain comes uncertainty. With pain comes discomfort. And there aren't a lot of quick solutions in life to pain or fear. And Leah's life is messy. And troubles that we all have and this world have are messy. All the people in her life, all the people that surrounded her each day, and no one saw her. They didn't see her, so they couldn't show her mercy cannot help move her to a place of healing, don't need to connect with her if you don't see. Mercy requires sight. Not just seeing what we want to see, that's easy. Not seeing what we wish we could see, that's easy too. But see what is really there. This may sound obvious, but it's really quite challenging in our everyday life. True seeing invades our safety. It rearranges things that we would prefer to keep very neatly aligned and protected. I'm going to ask you to do something that you're not going to like. I asked it at eight, the 815 service, and they really didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> You're better than they are. I know you can do better. I'm only going to ask you to do this for 10 seconds. But I'm going to ask you to do it where you say not a word and you make not a sound. And that's going to be hard. 
I want you to turn and face someone fairly close that is not someone you came to church with. And I want you to look them in the eye for 10 seconds without making a sound. Okay, get ready. You're making sounds, see? Maybe the 815 group is better. Come on, you can do better. Are you ready? Without, 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 make, without making a sound. 10 seconds, start. Thank you. Now you make sound. <laughs> Harder than it looks, harder than it sounds. It's called a scrutiny exercise. We don't like scrutiny. Nobel laureate Toni Morrison has said, seeing is bonding. Why did the priest and Levite cross to the other side of the road? So they wouldn't be in a position to see. No seeing means no bonding. No bonding means no mercy. No mercy means no responsibility. Seeing another in 10 quiet seconds can seem like a long time. That's enough, though, to begin to take a person in. We will always be changed by seeing. We are living in a time and in a place this day where we are all being invited to not see beyond our carefully curated field of vision. All the divides we are experiencing stay divided because no matter where you are and what you believe religiously, socially, culturally, politically, most days we do not have to take into our sight those that are very different from us. It's how we have set up our life. No seeing, no bonding. No bonding, no mercy. No mercy, no responsibility. All the beatitudes require the, the relationship, the responsibility of relationship. What God says in Scripture throughout essentially says, Forget about yourself and enter the world of another without reservation or judgment, fully, completely, faithfully, close up. Jesus is serious about this, that a Samaritan would be the one who saw the person in the ditch was a scandal in the New Testament. Jesus' beatitudes give us clear eyes. They remind us that there's no mercy without proximity. They unblock our field of vision as we learn to become persons of mercy. I don't think we're born with people of mercy. I think we have to learn that. But Jesus doesn't want us just to see a person in need. That leads to pity. That leads to sympathy. Mercy is rooted deep in the love and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Mercy leads us to see the face of God 
in the face of another. Mercy requires seeing. And not just any seeing, but the ability to see the face of God scandalously in everyone. Decorated World War II vet Jack Leroy Teller tells this story. It was two weeks after D-Day. It was dark and rainy and muddy. And I am so stressed. And I feel like my life is on the line. And I carried around my trumpet for my whole tour of duty, so I took it out. But the commander comes over and says, Jack, don't play tonight. We've got one German sniper left we haven't found. And that got me to thinking. I thought about that German sniper. He had to be as scared and lonely, as vulnerable as I felt. So I thought, I'm going to play a German love song on my trumpet. He takes out his trumpet and he plays against the commander's advice. The next morning, here comes this jeep up from the beach about a mile away. Hey, Captain, we've got some German prisoners here getting ready to go to England. One of them keeps saying in broken English, who was playing that trumpet last night? And so the sniper, now a prisoner, comes over and is face to face with Jack Teller. And he bursts into the song he heard from the trumpet. When I heard that number that you played, he said in broken English, I, I thought about my fiance in Germany. I thought about my mother and my father. I thought about my brothers and my sister. And I put down my gun. And he stuck out his hand. And Teller says, I shook the hand of the enemy. He was no enemy. He was as scared and lonely, as vulnerable as me. How did he do that? How did... He take this frightening, stressful, life-on-the-line moment and turn it into such a sacred moment? I don't know how he did that, but I do know this. This kind of love and mercy and imagination is what we find in the cross of Jesus Christ. What does the cross represent? That Jesus died for all good people? No. That Jesus died for all Christians? No. God took that first century instrument of capital punishment, which showed no mercy. And in the mystery of God's grace, God made God's mercy available for everyone. Not just for those who loved Jesus, but for everyone. For disciples and for Pharisees, for Jews and for Gentiles, for soldiers who flogged Jesus, for Pilate who condemned Jesus to death. Jesus died for them all. For those who go to church and those who spit on the church, for those who are being bullied and for the bullies, Jesus died for them all. For the 45% of Americans who this morning approve of the job Donald Trump is doing, and for the 47% who this morning disapprove of the job Donald Trump is doing, and for the 8% who aren't sure yet, Jesus died for every person. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table. It's called Holy Communion because when sharing this meal, we believe that we are sharing it with Jesus. His spirit enlivening our spirit. His sustenance providing us nurture. We are also, of course, communing with one another. Fred Beekner has observed, to eat this particular meal together is to meet at the level of our most basic humanness, which involves our need not just for food, but for each other. 
I need you to help fill my emptiness just as you need me to help fill yours. As for the emptiness that's left over, well, we're in it together or it in us. Maybe it's most of what makes us human and makes us brothers and sisters. Beekner says, the next time you walk down the street, take a good look at every single face that you pass and in your mind say, Christ died for you. That girl, that slob, that phony, that crook, that saint, that damned fool, Christ died for you. Take and eat this in the remembrance that Christ died for you. I'm going to suggest another scrutiny exercise in a moment, but you don't need to look at each other for 10 seconds this time. <laughs> Rather, we do communion by coming forward. It gives you plenty of time. I would like you to take that time this morning and look at the faces of those with whom you are communing as they come forward those you know well and those you don't know at all, and especially those that you're pretty sure that you see the world and faith and culture and politics and everything else very differently than the person you're looking at. And say to each one you see, silently to yourself, Christ died for you. And then I want you to imagine others who may join our communion line this morning. The family in Nairobi, Kenya, who with visas ready to go, sold everything they had to come to America, only to be left still in Nairobi, now with nothing. They're children of God. The family of fallen Navy SEAL Ryan Adams, that family in Peoria, Illinois this morning, are grieving children of God. Residents of Flint, Children of God, abandoned auto workers and despairing coal miners, children of God, first responders, daughters and sons of God, our armed services in harm's way, children of God, the children of Syria in harm's way, children of God, Donald Trump, child of God, Hillary Clinton, child of God. Barack Obama and George W. Bush, each a child of God. Struggling teens, children of God. Addicted adults, children of God. Displaced persons around the globe, as of this morning, 65 million people and counting, children of God. Those for whom Christ died include those who in the last two weeks feel that they're being seen for the first time in decades. It also includes those who know with searing pain what it feels like to be so, so scared and their way of life so threatened that these last two weeks have felt like an unending nightmare. All children of God. All those God calls us to see, and seeing requires proximity. All to whom we are called because of our faith in Jesus Christ to show mercy. God's mercy requires that we don't get to pick and choose. I wish we could pick and choose. We're not allowed to pick and choose because God 
does not pick and choose. God calls us to see, and as we see to offer mercy all the time, never stop, to every child of God we see, even when it makes us feel so vulnerable. As those who struggled for civil rights in our country in the 1960s were trained in nonviolence, they were taught to look at those who were beating them and to look at those who were fighting them. They were told to look them in the eye. They were told even if they were going down because of a wound or a blow, to contort, literally contort their bodies to keep eye contact with the person who was beating them. Congressman John Lewis, who nearly lost his life from a beating he received on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma on Bloody Sunday, has said, we did say that if someone kicked you or spit on you or ripped you off a lunch counter stool, continue to make eye contact. Continue to give the impression that yes, you may beat me, but I am a human being. You have to grow. It's not just something that's gonna come natural. You have to be taught the way of peace. You have to be taught the way of love. You have to be taught the way of mercy. Today, we are in danger of losing eye contact with the very ones God has put in our path. We are in danger of losing eye contact with those who God has put in this world to be our brothers and our sisters to whom we must, out of our faith, share mercy. It's not an option for us to pass by on the other side of the road because of fear or because of security or vulnerability or anything else. As we come to the table this morning, the joyful feast, continue to see the world that Jesus Christ died for. You are in the right place if you show mercy because you'll be in the right place to receive mercy. And then you'll be in the right place to see the face of God.